Welcome to the Story Story Night podcast, where you hear true stories on a theme, told live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jessica Holmes. On this podcast, we make a comeback with Underdog, stories of long shots. First, featured storyteller Al Popwell plays the unpopular before it all plays out. Hello, everybody. The last time I was here, I covered sex in detail. So tonight, I have to complete the trilogy. So we're going to cover drugs and rock and roll. And uh, my second job, after running a successful prostitution ring in middle school, was to play in a rock and roll band. I played bass for four years and I never held a real job. But then one day, something began to happen that was evil to me, and it it came on like an evil wave. I noticed my friends were wearing high-heeled shoes, and they were men. (laughs) And I noticed they forgot how to button their shirts. And then I noticed, perhaps worst of all, that they were buying gold chains big enough to lock up bicycles with, but they were staining their chest green. Yeah, disco was here. As fast as the mirror balls were going up, my band gigs were going down. And it only got worse because I had to get a real job. And my dad was happy about it, but of course I was depressed. My dad was all too happy to set me up with that real job with a buddy of his named Lou. Lou was a 65-year-old underdog who I could identify with because I instantly became a rock and roll underdog when the disco wave hit. And Lou started a delivery business with his bicycle, carting around car batteries, believe it or not. He had a little trailer and he grew this into a company That was 440 people by the time I got there. And Lou and I shared a sense of humor, and he became a friend to me. And uh, he he was just a great guy. I mean, a lot of my job was going into his office and spending two hours just talking with him, and it wasn't boring. So as the years went on, he started to confide certain things in me. And one of the things was that his wife had a nervous condition. And, you know, you don't want to inquire too much about it, but she kind of asked nervous condition, you know, and... Lou says, well, she just kind of lapses into these spells or whatever where she's very nervous and can't function. And along that line, I have a favor to ask you. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I can't watch somebody with a nervous condition or, you know. But Lou says, um, he says, you know, I don't know if you know, but we've recently adopted a child. Now, Lou's 65 years old and his wife is 63 at the time. And he says, not only have we adopted a child, but she's a problem child. We rescued her from a bad life, and we're trying to bring her up. So, you know, it's one of those moments where you're sitting there struggling for words. So, of course, you know, I say something dumb. I say, you know, Lou, the animal shelters are full. Perhaps a dog or cat would have sufficed. But Lou's like, well, you don't know my wife, and let me just ask you the favor. So the favor Lou has to ask me is he wants me to accompany himself, his daughter, and her boyfriend to a rock concert. 
So, of course, I say, well, okay. He goes, well, I figure you know the ropes being in the industry and stuff. I'm like, okay, you know, who's the band? And Lou says, Vaughn somebody, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, this could be disco. This could be some teeny bopper band. I don't know who it is. And Lou says, well, I'll bring the tickets tomorrow. You can check out the full thing. So, so he does, and he shows me the ticket, and it happens to be Van Halen, who had just broke at the time. Now, you know, while Van Halen was a little over the top with David Lee Roth bordering on disco with his clothes and prancing around the stage, I could appreciate Eddie and the way he could just rip up a guitar, you know. But then I noticed something else on the, on the ticket. And it says that Van Halen is the opening act and the featured band is Black Sabbath. <laughs> so to me, to me as a, a you know, a, a rock and roll kind of musician with being in the middle of disco, I didn't even know Black Sabbath was coming to town. So I'm like there, you know. And Black Sabbath themselves is full of underdogs. I mean, besides them being labeled as the princes of darkness and all of that kind of stuff, um, Ozzy Osbourne, the lead singer, was very broke in the early days of Sabbath. In fact, he owned one pair of clothes and often walked to practice in the winter with no shoes because he couldn't afford shoes. Lived in kind of a North England cottage with five siblings, no indoor plumbing or anything like that. And then the guitar player, Tony Iommi is his name, on his last day of work at a sheet metal factory, he shears off the tips of these two fingers. And he was quitting that sheet metal factory job to join Black Sabbath full time. So of course he has to relearn to play the guitar all over again, and he does a great job, and he basically mounted thimbles to his fingers and learned to play all over again, and he's a legend now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and everything. So we go to the concert, and of course, you know, Van Halen's good, and Sabbath comes on, and they're doing their thing, and it's pure, and it's magic, and I can tell I'm looking at, like, the birth of rock. It was really great for me personally. At the same time, I'm babysitting, you know. And um, the intermission comes on, and Lou says, you know, I've got to go out and smoke my pipe. And... I know he was just leaving to get rid of his contact high because you could tell he was staggering with all the smoke in the air and stuff. So he leaves, and when he comes back after 10 or 15 minutes or whatever it was, I notice he has numbers written on his arm, like in Sharpie. And in Chicago, where I'm from, not New Jersey, thank you very much, When you have Sharpie on your forearm, it means only one thing, right? Either you have little kids or you were thrown in the paddy wagon. Because in order to maximize controlling the animals in Chicago when things got out of hand, they wrote a number on your arm and equated that to a form which had on it what you did. So assault and battery, weapons possession. So I'm thinking Lou has gotten busted doing something foolish or yelling at somebody. So I inquire, you know, Lou, what are, what are these numbers on your arm? And he says, ah, that's the secret code some guy gave me to get into the after party. <laughs> I said, Lou, uh, who, who gave you this code? He says, oh, well, one of the guys that carries the equipment, a roadie, I think they call him. 
So I'm, I'm suspicious, you know. I say, where is it? And Lou names a hotel that's a very nice hotel in Chicago and very close. And, and the whole second half of the show, Sabbath is great and stuff, but all I can think about is, is this really true or not? You know, so afterwards, Lou says, well, I'm not going to that party. I told you those guys were a bunch of hoodlums and they were smoking God knows what. And I said, well, Lou, you know, I got to go. I, I got to check this out. So he's like, okay, well, good luck, you know. And I knew my way around the trains and stuff. I could get home. So now I'm full of anxiety, right? Because I don't know if this is a scam. I don't know if somebody's just telling this old guy, hey, just mention this number and you'll get into the party and then somebody's just gonna, you know, beat him up or whatever. So I walk into the hotel and I'm wondering how am I gonna find this party? I mean, there's not gonna be a sign that says Black Sabbath party here. <laughs> but when I walk in, thankfully, I see a bank of like eight elevators and there's a 400 pound guy sitting in front of one and he's not fat. And I thought, that's the place. So I walk up to him and I go, uh, 427340. Just waiting. And he says, right this way, sir. Door opens, puts me in. Hits the top button and the elevator goes to the top floor. And when the door opens, it's like a sea of humanity. Rock music, liquor, people laying on the floor, and blue smoke. And blue smoke you know, if, if you've done drugs or if you're like me and you just know about them. <laughs> Blue smoke can mean only one thing, hash, because it hangs in the air, right? So, so, so people, are, people are lit up, you know, and I, I step out of the elevator and I step over a few, you know, groupies and crew sluts and all that. And... Um, for those of you who don't know, a groupie's already made it. A crew slut has to get past the crew, and we'll just leave it at that. So I walk out into the hallway, and now that I'm in and past all this anxiety, I think my adrenaline just drops, because I was really nervous. I didn't know what I was walking into. And I noticed that I have to urinate in the worst way. And the first three rooms that I go into, because it's the whole top floor of a hotel, are occupied. You know, people are smoking or doing whatnot. Oh, excuse me, shut the door. So I figure, okay, I'm going to go down to the end or find the end where I can find a place to, you know, do what I need to do. So I look down, and at the end of the hall is a big double door, and it doesn't look like anybody's in there. And I thought, okay, that's the place. So I walk down there, and it turns out that it's the luxury suite. And there's nobody in there. I thought, this is cool. I find the bathroom, and I, I notice that when I walk in, there's a stereo in the bathroom. And the music's playing, and it happens to be, ironically, Led Zeppelin's When the Levee Breaks. <laughs> so, as I step up to the, you know, toilet preparing to break my own levee, all of a sudden the music stops. It's dead silence. Of course, I'm shocked looking around and I hear, hey, who turned off the damn Zeppelin? And I realize that somebody's in the bathroom. And I turn around and I see this head peering over the deep jacuzzi type tub and it's none other than Ozzy Osbourne. 
And I say probably what is one of the dumbest things in my life. And that is, Ozzy, what are you doing here? And of course, now I realize Ozzy's used to a thousand questions that are stupid. You know, uh, is Satan one of your influences and all that? And, and in truth, Sabbath, they're like hippie peace lovers. If you read their lyrics, they're, you know, anti-war. They're all for peace and stuff. But Ozzy rode this all the way to the bank, right? If you want to call me a, a satanic whatever, I'll ride it to the bank. So we have a nice discussion and I start basically whining to him about, you know, I had a band and uh, disco wiped me out, you know. And he's being very cordial. And it comes to a point where he says, well, what are you going to do now? Are you going to play disco? I said, no, I, I can't do that. I mean, I, there's nothing there for me. I don't understand it. I don't even like it. And he says, that's good. I'm glad to hear you say that because once you lick the lollipop of mediocrity, you will suck forever. Now, now as a 25-year-old in front of his idol, who, who never expected this, right? I'm, I'm kind of stunned, and I say, wow, that's really good. Is that, is that yours? You know, and Ozzy says, no, I read it in a magazine somewhere. So we have a nice discussion, and I'm, you know, motivated by it and all that. And he says, well, I've got to go now. He says uh, to me, I've got a charity case tonight. She's not much to look at, but what the hell? And I'm, I'm going, okay. You know, I thought he was going to ask me for a ride or where a certain address was or whatever. So Ozzy leaves, and I stay and hang out at the party. And... Uh, that was that. But a year later, something occurs at Comiskey Park in Chicago, which is where the White Sox play baseball. And what they do is they offer a promotion where you can pay 98 cents to get into a doubleheader, but you have to bring a disco record. And between the games, they're going to blow up the disco records. Okay, now... The Sox drew 5,500 people on a good day back then. The place was packed. People were throwing down human chains to get in. And of course, the game ends and they blow up these records and then a riot ensues. People, I wasn't there, but the film is on YouTube. And a riot ensues and people take to the field and they're tearing up the field and they're burning the picnic tables at second base and burning up the entire ball field. So the Sox have to cancel the game and, and forfeit the game. And uh, the Bee Gees actually said that that night effectively killed disco. So I shed no tears, you know. And my dad said to me, you're going to see your sister in West Side Story next week, so don't even argue about it. You know, this was like months later, I don't remember. And I go there, and my sister has a small part, but there's three girls in this musical that are just rocking the walls when they sing. And it dawns on me, I have to recruit them and form a band. Nobody's doing this in Chicago. So I do, and we do Pat Benatar, Hart, The Pretenders, Jefferson Airplane, and we become a big success, and I get to quit my real job and live on the road for four more years. So I kind of think that refusing to lick the disco lollipop of mediocrity 
made me a better, made me the underdog that came back. Thank you. Thanks, Al. Next up at Story Story Night, we feast on Consumed, stories of hunger and appetites. On September 24th, with featured storytellers Brent Southcombe, Cheryl Maddalena, and Anna Dimitriadis. This show also features fusion art performances from storyteller Emma Arnold and musician Jack Lloyd Gish in the first act, and a dance from choreographer Chanel Da Silva, dancer Libby Schmoger, and writer Jessica Holmes in the second half. Eat it up. Save your seat at the story table with priority seating tickets available at storystorynight.com. Next up, story slammer Lizzie Duffy goes for best in show, guinea pig style, in an epic underdog matchup. Hey there. Ooh, okay. Um, <laughs> so my story is about how I was in 4-H, and I was one of those weird kids. I was in 4-H for 10 years. And it's pretty cute when you're little, you know, when you're seven and you have a guinea pig. That's adorable. When you're 17 and you have a guinea pig, that's a little weird. (laughs) But I had stuck with guinea pigs because in order to do the leadership projects, I had to have an animal. So I had done guinea pigs. And I had memorized everything and I had taken on all the pressures of showing, you know, and you have to like dress up, you have to be able to control the animal, you have to answer all these questions about quality, and you have to know points. Like, did you know that there are 100 points that add up to every breed of guinea pigs? Did you know there are 13 breeds of guinea pigs? These are the things that I learned when I was probably 12, and then at the creepy age of 17, I remembered them. (laughs) So, anyway, the point is, it was my last year I was about to be a senior in high school. I was doing this because I went to teen conference, um, which is a really, really fun uh, leadership, like getaway for all the teenagers. So I was doing doing the guinea pigs for the conference. So anyway, um, I had one competitor. Her name was Danielle. I won't say her last name because I'm probably not gonna be very nice about her. (laughs) But Danielle was like, she, her mom made her take on a new project every single year. So she not only did guinea pigs, but she did goats, cats, dogs, uh, chickens, rabbits, everything. She was a wonder. And I don't know how she stored all that information, all the points, values, all the breeds, all, everything in her head. So it was like the day, maybe a day before showing, you know, I had ironed my white shirt and my black pants that I had to wear. And she's, she comes up to me and she's like, do you know how many teeth a guinea pig has? And I'm like, uh, they have four teeth. And she's like, well, what about molars? And I was like, I don't know. And you know, she's trying to psych me out. <laughs> <laughs> and I've kind of done this dance and I'm like, there's two of us. <laughs> like, we don't need to do this anymore. So, and I like had given up on studying because I figured if they asked me a question I don't know at this point, then you know what? That was 10 years wasted. So, <laughs> so then it's like, you know, the day of, and she has been flipping through the whole quali- standard quality, quality standard. Anyway, 
I obviously don't remember now, but she's flipping through all the points values and like memorizing them all, like making sure that she's like within my eyesight so that I can see her memorizing everything. And you know, a few minutes before showmanship, you know, we're now in our showman outfits, hair's all tied back and stuff. It's pretty, that's actually pretty formal. And she's like, well, do you know how many bones they have? And I'm pretty fed up with her at this point. You know, I've seen her like just stalking around this small animal barn. <laughs> she's the shit and you know. <laughs> and I look at her and I'm like, I don't know. I, I have no idea. And you can see this look on her face. It's like, yeah, you don't know and I'm gonna win dog, and I'm gonna win pygmy goats, and I'm gonna win chickens. <laughs> so we approach the table. It's this long table, there's two of us. And it's this little woman, um, and I actually bought a guinea pig from her before, so she knew who I was. And uh, so we're standing at the table, we're asked to approach the table. Approach the table, set the guinea pig down. She asked us to show the guinea pig. And I know that some of you are like, how do you show a guinea pig? Well, <laughs> it's not that hard. When you're little, it's pretty hard, but as a super senior showman, <laughs> it's, not that, it's not that bad. <laughs> so we do it, and it's pretty quick, and now my hands are a lot bigger, too, so when you flip over the guinea pig to show the four teeth, it's not that hard anymore. And we both do it at the same time. <laughs> this is more distracting than the music. <laughs> but... Um, flip over the guinea pig and set it back up. And the whole point is to make sure the guinea pig doesn't move. I know with like actual pigs you use canes, but with guinea pigs you just make sure that they don't move the square. Most of them fall asleep anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> if you go to the fair now, now you'll know what they're actually doing, right? Okay. <laughs> so anyway, so we're on opposite ends of this long table and she's asked us each at different times to show the guinea pigs. And then she goes up to Danielle and she gets really close and I can't hear what she says to her. And Danielle like kind of like looks at her, she like nods, she says something, and then the judge walks away. And then the judge walks up to me, and all she says to me is, do you have any questions for me? And I sit there, and I'm thinking, you know, at this point, if I don't know, it doesn't really matter because I'm not doing 4-H after this. But on the other hand, I really wanna win, you know? And so I think, and then I say, what does it take to be a quality showman? And if you've ever been in the small animal barn, it's super loud, so you can't, I couldn't hear her. I have no idea what she said. I'm sure it had something to do with form and knowing how many bones there are and how many teeth there are and everything. I have no idea. And I'm nodding and smiling. And then she kind of goes off to her little judge's table and then she comes back with the ribbons, you know, those big rosette ribbons. And she walks up to us and she sets down two blue ribbons. We get those just for showmanship. And then she has her two rosettes. So there's a light purple one and there's a dark purple one. The dark purple one is the one you want. And she sets down the lavender ribbon in front of Danielle and she sets down the dark purple ribbon in front of me. And she said, these are two outstanding showmen. But Lizzie was able to ask me a question where Danielle did not. from every single interview that I've done, you know, for college or for a job or whatever. If they ask if you have a question, just make one up because it makes you that much more invested. That is my story. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party. The Driving Force, Jessica Holmes. The Stargazer, Nissan Nagel. The Ship Shaper, 
Anna Dimitriadis, the ringmaster Kylie Krill, and the story seeker Zach Borman, as well as our think tank, partners, and fabulous volunteers. Theme song music and podcast production are by the man making a comeback, Dan Costello. Hear more at hearcostello.com. Join us in person next week on September 24th for Consumed. And on October 8th for our last Story Story Late Night of the Year with Intoxication and Altered States with host Brandon Follett. More at storystorynight.com. <laughs>